Watch yourselves. Increase speed, full throttle. We're right behind you. R2, that stabilizer's broken loose again. See if you can't lock it down. Look out! High fighter, right behind us. I'm hit. Losing control. I can't hold course. Well, get clear, Wedge. You can't do any more good back there. Sorry, Luke. The tires aren't following. They're staying on you. The leader's flying some kind of prototype Hurry, Luke. They're coming in much faster this time. I, I can't hold them. R2, try and increase the power. The leader's last to me. Luke, I... Biggs? Biggs! Hang on, R2. Luke, 30 seconds left. Targeting computer. Locked on. This is Mark Hamill. Once again, I play the role of Luke Skywalker. This time, in the only radio production of Star Wars. I hope you join me on National Public Radio. everywhere welcome to episode number 188 of blast points this is jason and escape we got a special treat this week it's a very special treat it's gonna be an episode with a lot of drama <laughs> turn up your radio star wars radio dramas brian daly we you know we've been meaning to do like i think like since year one of the podcast we had like an episode like we gotta do an episode on the radio dramas and as you're going to hear coming up in this episode, we went to celebration and we were like, we can't do an episode on the radio dramas. <laughs> we know nothing. Right. You'll hear coming up on here, we've got uh, John and Mary Jo Tenuto. We're so happy to have them on the show so they could share their knowledge of the radio dramas and Brian Daly and uh, sit back, pour yourself a cup of tea or something, <laughs> get comfy because this is, this, is, uh, this is a good trip. So if you were listening to us around Star Wars Celebration Chicago, you probably heard us gushing about the Star Wars radio drama Brian Daly panel that we went to on Saturday night there in Chicago. We we said it then and we still mean it today that it was probably one of the best panels we went to at Celebration Chicago and possibly one of the best panels, most memorable panels we've been to in all of our Star Wars celebrations we've ever been to. And this week, we are thrilled to welcome the hosts of that panel, John and Mary Jo Tenuto. Thank you both so much for being on this week. Thank you for having us. Thanks, guys. I, I, I remember after, after the panel was done, I was sitting with Gabe, and I, I said to Gabe, I was like, 
I'm going to go shake his hand. <laughs> I went up to, I remember I went up to you after the panel and I was like, that was one of the best panels I've ever been to because I, I really, I was like watching that panel. I felt like I almost had an out of body experience for a moment. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it was a lot, it was a, it was a great deal of fun and we were really thrilled when, uh, when they agreed to, to, to let us talk about that there. It was, and when, like when we were watching it too, it's like, I swear I know them from somewhere. And then after, the panel was done and I was like, who were those people? It was discovered. I remembered both from the, the Netflix, the toys that made us show, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. That was, that was also a lot of fun. We, we had a great time at the celebration because uh, so many fellow fans had seen that, seen that show. And, and we got to talk to a lot of different fans and bumped into fans, even a fan from, uh, from, uh, but where was it from? From Paraguay. uh, From Paraguay. And we got a chance to, um, just to kind of, you know, almost like people knew us already. And so we were able to form friendships really quickly with people. And that was a great, that was, that was really a great part of the, the weekend. And I discovered you're both also sociology prof- pro- professors, correct? Yeah. So we both teach sociology at the College of Lake County in Grays Lake, Illinois. And we use Star Wars in our classes. <laughs> it's the best kind of classes. <laughs> yeah, so if, you, if you care about education, you must use Star Wars in your class. Right. Brian Daly and the Star Wars Radio Dramas, where, where does this story begin? Where, how does this all start? Well, I always like to say it, it doesn't, it's interesting because it actually begins way before the Star Wars Radio Drama ever premieres, almost, almost 50 years before in a way. Uh, so it kind of starts in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. But it's it really the origins, the, 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 the inspiration and the connections to it all go back to Orson Welles' The War of the Worlds, which began at the CBS radio studios. They recorded that on October 30th, 1938. In fact, that was kind of fun because the, you know, just last year was the, was the anniversary of that, you know, a big anniversary of that radio show. And of course, I'm sure most people are familiar with that, a very famous radio show that was done in such a realistic way and using a lot of the sort of tropes of the time, you know, the starting off with music and then breaking in with news reports that seemed accurate and told at a time when the world was all focused on invasion. Uh, Hitler had just invaded, uh, you know, and, and rejoined with Austria and there was, there was invasions of Poland and there was talk of worries about invasions of the United States. And so that radio play about invasions, there was a certain authenticity to it that, caused for some people, uh, a, a, you know, some people kind of b- bought it and believed it. And um, how much that occurred and how big the panic was is a matter of debate. But certainly it was a powerful and, and scandalous and controversial radio show. We wound up with different laws because of it. You, you, you could no longer have like emergency, realistic emergency sounding alarms on your radio programs because of War of the Worlds. And, and you know, in the 1930s and 50s, it was very common for films to be adapted to radio. In that case, that was a, a book being adapted into a radio drama. But that, that sort of adaption of, of uh, plays and movies and, and books into radio dramas was common. But it was also very different than the Star Wars radio drama because they were usually done live. You know, like Lux Radio Theater, which was really the big, big, important sort of radio drama for people, radio play uh, uh Dramas for people went from October, I think, 1934 to June 1955. So those radio shows were on for 20 years. And they they used to adapt all different kinds of of, um, plays and movies and TV shows for for radio audiences. And 
but and, and there were some similarities with Star Wars, the Star Wars radio dramas. They did the radio dramas back then used to feature some of the stars from the movies, but there was also some differences too. Like uh, they were much shorter. So where Star Wars, the Star Wars radio drama, what is amazing to us is the original Star Wars only has 27 minutes of actual dialogue in the whole film. If you strip away all the sound effects and music, really the music is what carries Star Wars. And, and Lucas, George Lucas talks about how Star, the, you know, Williams, John Williams soundtrack is the heart of it. And the dialogue is almost secondary in a way, and it's only 27 minutes. But the Star Wars radio drama has 390 minutes of dialogue. It's an expansion. Most of those early radio dramas were contractions of the movie. So like The Day the Earth Stood Still was only a 60-minute radio drama. The film was 90 minutes. Or It's a Wonderful Life in 1947, which had James Stewart and Donna Reed. That was only 60 minutes. The movie was 130 minutes. And so it was very different. Star Wars has its roots there. And we'll, and as we kind of go through, we'll probably bump into Orson Welles a couple more times. But um, it, those early radio dramas were kind of like the forefathers of what the Star Wars radio drama was. That's fascinating. I didn't, I never even knew like a day there stood still radio drama. Gabe, have you ever? No, the only, I only know the war of the worlds is kind of all my history of radio dramas back in those days, as much as I knew about. Yeah. The, the day the earth stood still, the radio drama, it starred uh, Michael Rene. So the guy who played Clat Clatu in the film played the character on the radio drama. That was kind of common. They choose like one or two of the big actors and they would be in the radio dramas. And then other people like, and it's a wonderful life. The angel and like all the other voices uh, pretty much are done by Mel Blanc, you know, who isn't even in the <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, but he, he was such a, obviously a master of voice work. So, but I love the day of the earth stood still. Cause of course it has that connection to star Wars with the line, you know, Clato Barato, Nikto. And, and uh, there are star Wars characters named Clato Barato, Nikto and return of the Jedi. So I always love that connection between those, yeah. those two films and the radio. Drama. Michael Rennie and Gene Peters in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Irving Cummings. So, uh, well, you know, the next, the next thing is uh, uh, really when you're talking about the Star Wars radio drama itself, uh, you, you got to look at there's sort of two things happening at the same time in the late 1970s. Uh, in 1977, a man by the name of Frank Mankiewicz becomes president of National Public Radio which at that time is really suffering. It's having a lot of funding problems, a lot of ratings problems. And, um, and it's not the typical radio model, right? It's national public radio. So they're dependent on government funding and donations and, and that's sort of drying up. And so Frank Minkowitz is brought in to kind of fix that problem at NPR. And, uh, and that was because they felt like he understood both Washington where they had to do a lot of you know, sort of lobbying and negotiating. And he also understood the entertainment world uh, his dad was uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who, along with Orson Welles, again, Orson Welles, um, wrote Citizen Kane. And uh, his, his dad also wrote uh, one of the early drafts of The Wizard of Oz. It was actually Frank Mankiewicz's dad's idea to make Kansas sequences in black and white. And that stayed, obviously, uh, with that. And then, there, and then Frank's son, in, in terms of movies, is Ben Mankiewicz. So anybody who's a fan of Turner Classic Movies and knows Ben Mankiewicz and who hosts a lot of the programs there um that frank is his dad so there's this whole sort of hollywood lineage that frank understood but then also frank had been the press secretary to robert kennedy when when he was running for president and in fact if anybody's ever seen the footage of 
a, a man coming out of the, the, the hospital informing the press that Kennedy had been killed in, on June 6, 1968. That was actually Frank Mankiewicz. So he kind of under, he understood the world of Washington and he understood the world of radio and entertainment. So he was kind of brought in to sort of fix NPR. And he kind of had two ideas. One was to beef up their news side and to introduce more news programming. So some of the shows that he created are still around on NPR today. But he also had the idea, they had had some success with a, with a radio show called Earplay. And Earplay adapted uh, you know, books and, and, and stage plays to radio. At that time, it was one of the very few radio dramas still in existence in the United States. And so that had been doing pretty good in the ratings. So he had the idea of, of finding ways to beef up NPR's sort of radio drama side of things and created another show called the the Playhouse, NPR Playhouse. So meanwhile, as that's going on in another part of the galaxy, uh, at, at uh, the University of Southern California, there's a man by the name of Dr. Richard Toskin, uh, who was great because we, we got to interview uh, uh, Richard a couple of times. And he, he was a big help with our research. And he was the associate dean of performing arts there. And he was a fan of radio shows. And one of his responsibilities was to be the KUSC FM. They had a radio uh, a station at USC, and it was an NPR affiliate. So they actually played at Earplay and things like that. And But they had produced their own original radio dramas as a way to give students practical experience. And, and, they, and they were done in a very sophisticated way. So anybody who's a fan of the Waltons, you know, they would have like Richard Thomas from the Waltons would come in and do some of the, the uh, radio dramas. So they would have professional actors, working on the, the USC radio plays. And they, they also got some big coups, like they were able to negotiate with Raymond Chandler's uh, widow to do some of his books on radio. So um, he's the author who wrote Philip Marlowe, who's the character Humphrey Bogart played in some of the movies. And so they, they, had, they had had some of the success. Well, the, the creative director at USC that Richard Toskin had brought in was an actor and director and producer by the name of John Houseman. So if anybody's a fan of 1980s sitcoms, they probably know John Houseman as the grandpa on Silver Spoons. Or people might know him from the movie Paper Chase. He won an Academy Award for that. But back in the old days, again, Orson Welles, uh, he was the producer of the War of the Worlds radio drama. And so he was friends with both Frank Mankiewicz and Orson Welles. I'm sorry, with Herman Mankiewicz. He knew Frank Mankiewicz. He was friends with Orson Welles, and Frank Mankiewicz had told John Houseman that he wanted to beef up his radio dramas and his radio plays. Did he know anybody who could kind of help him with that, help produce that? So Houseman suggested Richard Toskin over at USC. And so Richard was trying to think, well, what could he do? What, what would be interesting? What, what could they do for NPR that would be new and interesting? And um, they were struggling with an idea. The idea to do more Raymond Chandler plays fell apart because the the uh, his widow had decided no more that they were that they had done enough, and so uh, one day uh, John Houseman is is there with Richard Toskin, and Richard Toskin says, "You know, you got me into this problem. Like I'm supposed to help save NPR. You know, um, what do I do? How do I do this?" And John Houseman, thinking back to his War of the Worlds experience, said, "You need to create a scandal. You need to do something scandalous and controversial." So now they're really trying to think of like, well, what can we do? And uh, in walks the answer. So visiting the school 
um, was a, a, a former student by the name of Joe Rosenwig. And Joel had been a student and Richard had known him and he was sort of just sitting around and they were talking about, you know, what Rich, uh, what Joel was doing at that time. And uh, Joel was an interesting person in and of himself. He was actually at USC around the same time George Lucas was. And he, he had met George Lucas. In fact, he remember, Joel remembered George talking about the idea of doing some kind of science fiction uh, movie. And Joel had actually recommended to, to George, why not do it as a, a TV show, thinking more along the lines of something like Star Trek. And George had said, no, no, I really want to do a movie, even though George was a big Star Trek fan and, and liked Star Trek and used to go to Star Trek conventions, actually, George Lucas, believe it or not. Joel had been kind of famous at the school because it was when he was a student there, uh, Joel came up with the idea of taking Tommy's The Who and moving it from an album to an actual stage play rock opera. And so he was the first one to ever do that. So anybody who sees like the, 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 uh, the, the, you know, Tommy now on stage can thank Joel for that idea. But he was that kind of thinker. Uh, he was uh, eventually became a director and directed uh, Emmy. He was Emmy nominated, he directed Emmy nominated performances on like Cagney and Lacey and things like that. And unfortunately, Joel died uh, in 2014. But he he was kind of good at like putting things together that you wouldn't think go together. So Richard was kind of talking to him saying, well, what am I going to do? What kind of radio drama can we do? And Joel had the idea, why don't you do Star Wars on radio? Why don't you take the most visual film that's ever been made and put it on a medium where the only visuals would be in your mind and there would be no visuals and you couldn't depend on the visuals to carry the story. And uh, Richard knew immediately that that was the answer. There was the scandal and there was the controversy um, to, to do that. So really the idea of it, of star Wars on radio comes from, uh, Joel Rosenwick. It's such a great story because it's almost kind of like, it's almost kind of like star Wars itself. It's, it's about this small band of people who are, you know, kind of, if not rebels, they're, they're creative thinkers and they take on a task that seems kind of impossible and, uh, and they're able to achieve that goal. And, and every everything logically thinking, say, there's no way this could ever work. Oh, and that was the answer from everyone. I mean, at, at NPR, when Frank Mankiewicz, Frank, Frank Mankiewicz liked the idea, but everybody else at NPR thought it was, in, why? You know, why would you do this? And, and, and I think, too, even though Star Wars was, of course, wildly popular at this time, we're talking now around 1978, uh, early 1978, when this is all sort of beginning, it was still sort of perceived as sort of a, you know, for kids, it was a, and Lucas had intended it to be for kids. And so is the kid audience really going to help save NPR? I mean, who's going to listen to this? And I think they underestimated the amount of adult interest in star Wars. And so there was kind of a, a curiosity, even a curiosity on Lucasfilm's part of if this could even be done. And, and of course, George was somebody who would, who, who liked, when people were able to do things that others said couldn't be done. And so um, there, there was support, but not a lot. And in fact, so many of the newspaper articles of the time, like the headlines would be Star Wars on radio. And there'd be like a question mark, like, you know, crazy idea, you know, that kind of thing. Like, and, and, and it was, a, and, and as we kind of go along here too, it really was, there were a lot of challenges and, and, and almost impossible hurdles that they had to overcome. The possibilities were immediately apparent, it seems to me, because here is something that 
that really is is a perfect radio drama in the in the in the first movie. Frank Mankiewicz is the president of National Public Radio. One of the stars of the film is the soundtrack. I mean, that's one of the reasons people were drawn to it and attracted to it and came back time after time, is because of the uh, the brilliance uh, of the soundtrack and of the music and of the special effects. And we've we've blended those into the radio program, as you'll hear uh, uh, when the program goes on the air. There's just nothing like it. This is all Arthur's fault. Demented little twerp. He tricked me into going this way. He'll do no better. Well, you know, the, the, so the next big challenge was to, to get Lucasfilm on board. Obviously, they would need to get the rights. So uh, Richard went to Lucasfilm, and he spoke with people there. And one of the people uh, there was a woman by the name of Carol Teitelman, who anybody who listens to the radio drama hears that name. And anybody who's kind of a, a fan of the old-school Star Wars making of books probably knows Carol's name, too. Her, you know, she's She was responsible for the making of art books, the Star Wars portfolio, the Star Wars sketchbook, the art of Star Wars that had the script in it. That was all kind of Carol putting that and piecing that all together. They presented this idea to Lucasfilm, pretty certain that they would probably reject it, mainly because, like, could, could you do it? You know, could you actually take Star Wars and make put it on the radio? But they didn't anticipate a few things, and one was that George really liked that idea, liked the challenge of it. But there were other things that George liked. He he liked the idea that people who were like perhaps shut-ins, of course, thinking this is the era long before the internet or anything like that, you know, so, uh, and, and kids maybe who didn't have the money to go see a movie, that they'd be able to hear hear the story of Star Wars for free. And that they, he, he liked the idea that a whole new type of audience who otherwise couldn't enjoy the movie in a theater could at least enjoy the story of Star Wars. And that's another reason that George greenlit it. And the other big reason was George was an alumni of USC. Uh, he had graduated there in 1967, and he wanted to do something. He liked the idea of doing something for his alma mater. So he gave the rights to Star Wars, to USC, for radio drama purposes, including more than they could ever have hoped for. They were, they were only hoping for story rights they George also gave him the access to all the music, all the story points, and all the sound effects, wow. so that they would be able to actually have Chewbacca, actually have R two D two, actually have lightsaber sounds and and everything. And he sold it to them for one dollar. That was the entire cost. And and Brian Daly, who Mary Joe is going to talk more about Brian later, but Brian called that the most striking act of philanthropy that you could imagine because. I mean, to give the license to Star Wars was the license to print money. You put Star Wars on anything at that time, and you were, you know, the, the T-shirts alone were selling, you know, millions of dollars. And so that really, Lucas was giving away something that he could have he could have sold and made a lot of money on, and 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 we're really grateful for that. And so that allowed NPR and USC to have a bigger budget because they didn't have to spend any money really for rights. And so they wound up with a two hundred thousand dollar budget that they could put into the technology, and into the into making the the, the radio drama the, the best it could possibly be. So then the next challenge, once they had the rights, was to find the behind the scenes talent to find writers. Um, would any of the actors be interested? And Mary Jo is going to talk about that. But almost all of the actors were initially interested and. In, uh, in it, but to also su- to find a director and so on. And so NPR supplied a few of the people in the partnership between USC and NPR. One was 
uh, in fact, both of these guys were from Earplay. Um, one was John Madden, who would become the director, and John had directed quite a few of the Earplay uh, for NPR. Uh, initially, Richard was a little concerned, he had told us when we interviewed him, because Earplay was different than what he envisioned for Star Wars. For him, a radio drama was a movie for your for your imagination, and it, and it, you needed you need needed to be an immersive experience. Whereas earplay was a little more like dependent on dialogue. It, it it didn't have a lot of sound effects, and it didn't it didn't you didn't necessarily feel like you were in an environment when you were listening to an earplay. You you felt like you were a little more like watching a, a stage play. Hence the name earplay, right? And but for for Richard, for, for who was producing this, the Star Wars radio drama, it, he wanted it to be more like a movie for your mind. But but John Madden understood that he 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 was able to make that switch, and he he really contributed very importantly to the Star Wars radio drama, both because it was John Madden who kind of set up the structure of it. Uh, how do you take a two-hour film and, and and structure it so that it can be thirteen half-hour episodes? And extend it by you know four and a half hours, literally. And then John also directed all of the actors, and a lot of the actors, including people like like Mark Hamill and so on, at that point had never really done a lot of voice work, and certainly not a lot of radio work. And it's a different kind of acting. And so John understood how to direct actors who were a little bit unfamiliar with that. Other actors like Anthony Daniels had had experience, you know, in radio work. But and of course John Madden would go on, and I mean he won. He, he he directed Shakespeare in Love, which was a you know seven time Academy Award winner, and so he and he would come back and direct Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi radio dramas too. In a Hollywood recording studio, director John Madden works with actors Mark Hamill and Cale Brown. Madden, a veteran of BBC drama productions and National Public Radio's Earplay series, concentrates on helping actors imagine the final scenes. We record everything separately. We record the dialogue tracks first, um, all the sound, uh, the background sound, the local sound, all the various layers of sound, which in a project like this are <laughs> infinite almost, are then added later. When you are where so much of the, the, the total picture that is eventually going to be created has to be added afterwards in terms of sound. The actor then becomes, the actor's performance becomes the tip of the iceberg, and the rest of it has to be imagined. So that, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a scene where, where, oh, I don't know, a specific thing is happening, somebody's getting inside a land speeder, you know, a test of the actor's skill, really, is how effective they can be at actually creating the human, the human uh, component of that sound picture. It got to be known in the recording sessions as effort. I would ask for a little bit of effort from somebody, which meant that when Luke was getting into a land speeder, he would say, come on, 3PO, it's about time we got on the way here, you know, you, so that the effort would be in the voice. And if that component is actually in the voice, when you add the sound of that happening, it will immediately read as that happening. Now, that's something that <coughs> an actor... Get in, Wendy, time's wasting. I don't expect to have another whole free day until the moisture harvest is in. And then NPR also supplied the and the sound engineer, who was Tom Vagley, um, who would eventually go on to win Grammys and Peabody Awards. And anybody who's a fan of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was actually Tom Vagley's idea to do the um, story of, anybody remembers the old days when they would do stories of, because that was the only way you could have the story at home. We didn't have VCRs and, 
and uh, and and streaming services back then. So you would get like the story of Star Wars narrated by Roscoe Lee Brown, and you know they would edit the Star Wars story down to forty five minutes. But it was basically they took the soundtrack of the movie and and would put it on a, on a on an LP, and you would listen to it at home. And it was Tom who had the idea: let's do Raiders of the Lost Ark with no narration, because almost all of the stories of uh, type of LPs were done with a narrator. And so that was a groundbreaking idea. And that's such a great listen because it's similar to the Star Wars radio drama. And that was all Tom vaguely. So Tom, Tom was the, was the sound engineer who would spend a whole day just assembling like one minute of the radio drama. I mean, he really worked hard to make that radio drama perfect and, and, and pushed for things like the original music and so on. And, um, he was so he had such reverence for the sound effects that and so he was so nervous to have in the in his possession like the only copy because he had to bring the, co- the the sound effects to Minnesota to copy them uh, and then bring them back um, to, to Lucasfilm. He actually bought an airplane seat for the Star Wars sound effects so he could keep the sound effects next to him <laughs> on the airplane, which I just love and shows you kind of the how much he loved the, those sound, the Ben Bird sound effects and understood their importance to Star Wars. But the really big challenge was finding a writer. And so initially the BBC became a partner. That partnership would fall apart. But the idea was if we're going to do radio dramas, there's nobody better than to bring, than to bring in than the BBC because in Britain, radio dramas still to this day are still popular. And so um, they really knew how to do that. So they worked with a man from the BBC named John Tideman. And uh, the BBC originally supplied the writer and that writer whose name no one will ever reveal to us uh, was a, was a well-established writer and a good writer. They wrote seven episodes and they just didn't understand star Wars. They, 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 it was, it was, it was a fine script and everything, but it wasn't star Wars. It felt Richard told us it felt more like Lord of the Rings or Dune. And he felt it lacked what he called the American energy, that there's there's almost like an, uh, a type of energy and fun of Star Wars that's more like a Western, uh, an American cinema type of experience. And so the writer just didn't understand it and the script didn't have that. And so this was a problem because they were coming close to when they needed to record and they had no scripts. And of course, that's the heart of the whole drama. So Richard had the idea of... of trying to at least show Lucasfilm and NPR's board something. So he secretly wrote the first script himself and um, wrote it anonymously. And he used the novelization as his inspiration of how to expand the story, the novel that was had George Lucas's name on it, but was really written by Alan Dean Foster. He, what he did was he, he, when he showed it to people who loved the script, he told them it was an anonymous American young writer. And they said, we want to hire this kid. So he eventually had to tell them the truth that he actually wrote that script. And, and they said, well, we want you to write. And he said, I can't write this and produce it. He said, but I wanted to show you it is possible to do it. And so um, Carol Teitelman, kind of inspired by that, by that idea of a young American writer, thinks of Brian Daly and, and says, I have the perfect guy for you who's fast, good, and, and his name is Brian Daly. And so in, Ju- in July of 1978, uh, or in, yeah, in the spring of 1978 and summer of 1978, Brian Daly is kind of brought into the project. Um, and Mary Jo can talk a lot more about Brian, but I just, I wanted to read you a quote uh, Richard gave us about Brian. 
While everyone contributed to the radio dramas, it was really Brian Daly's series. If you don't have a script that works, you can have all the razzmatazz, and it's not going to work. Brian really had what works. Without Brian, we would not have been able to do Star Wars. And so Brian kind of comes in and saves the day. Had he already written his his Han Solo novels? Were there manuscripts for the Han Solo novels at this time? How was how did Brian Daly get on Lucasfilm's radar? Well, that you're exactly right. So Carol Teitelman knows that Brian Daly is a good character or a good writer who can click with the characters because of writing Han Solo at Star's End. And she also knows that he's fast because he wrote that book in just six weeks. And it was enormously popular, which is why he wrote um, then Han Solo's Revenge and Han Solo and the Last Legacy. So he had he had written Han Solo at Star's End, and that's why she knew um, that he had that ability to um, just bring the humanity to the characters and that he had a feel for the Star Wars universe. And his Han Solo novels, were they... The the after Splendor of the Mind's Eye, were they the second published uh, Star Wars fiction? Yes. So the first one was Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the first um, to come after the novelization of Star Wars. And then Han Solo stars on Brian Daly's book was the second one. I remember at the at the panel in Chicago, was that was there talk of uh, a Leia series of books also? And was this going to be a thing with there were the, there were the Han books there was, was this something that was going to keep going these early days of the, what later became known as the expanded universe? Yes. Yeah, so um, the publisher, Judy Del Rey was one of the first to realize the value of star Wars. Um, Cause we're, we're so used to having merchandise available, you know, weeks, even months before a film um, like with force Friday, but back in, you know, before A New Hope, there weren't that many companies that wanted to take a chance on Star Wars. But Del Rey was one of them. And so they were the ones who published the novelization um, that came out November 12th of 1976. And so they were the ones who published the first Expanded Universe book. And then after that, the original plan was to have the Empire Strikes Back scriptwriter. Um, she did the first pass of that. Uh, Leia Brackets. She was going to write a series on Leia, and then Brian's friend Jack Chalker was going to write um, a Han Solo series. But um, Leia died, and um, so the Leia books, uh, Leia Bracket died, and so the Leia books were not written. And then um, for some reason, with Jack Chalker, that fell through. So they went to their lead writer, which was Brian Daly, um, because of his success with the Doomsfair novels. And so they asked him if he wanted to write, and he was thrilled, and he had his pick of characters. And so he decided he wanted to write about Han Solo. Part of it was because he and Han Solo, there were some similarities, um, both you know, fun-loving, uh, romantics at heart, liked fast vehicles. Um, we showed a picture of Brian Daly with his, I think it was a 1976 Stingray. Um, so he felt like he clicked with Han Solo and he really gives us a lot of, um, you know, what we've come to know and love about Han, um, that he created. He, he's one of us. He was a sci-fi fan who he read every, um, sci-fi book and comic that, you know, he could get his hands on. Um, when he and his friend, James Lucino, who, you know, fans will know he was a writer himself. He wrote, uh, Millennium Falcon, uh, Tarkin. He and Brian Daly wrote the Robotech novels together. 
Um, so when they see Star Wars in the movies, in the movie theaters, it was a game changer for them. Um, they were really enthralled with the vision that George Lucas had. He's one of us. He was smart. Um, this was a guy, Brian Daly, he graduates from high school and then he serves in the military and he comes back five years after being out of high school. And so it just happens that he and his younger sister, Myra, are taking the SATs at the same time. And Myra tells us the story that she's in high school and she gets called to go to the counselor's office. And the counselor wants to understand why Brian, who had been out of school for five years, scored an 800 on the verbal for the SAT and a near-perfect score on math. And that's a testament to his intellect and his ability to write. He wrote um, like military reports when he was um, serving in Berlin. Um, so he's smart, a fast writer, and having that love of Star Wars um, that he's able to click with the characters. And so he writes the radio drama script. You know, he's taking those 27 minutes of dialogue, turning it into six plus hours of material in just three months with very few rewrites that were needed. Yeah, in fact, one of the few rewrites that Richard told us, that, and, and there was almost no rewriting, really, was mm-hmm. uh, he, they, they thought it was a great line. Everybody except Richard and Lucasfilm. There was a line that was supposed to be in there where Han Solo, uh, uh, Brian had written a line that's where Han Solo said, hey, don't look at me, I'm only the bus driver. They thought it was hilarious, Richard said, oh, no, no, no reference to buses, right? And so he, w- he went to Lucasfilm. He said, what do you think of this line? I said, nope, no line. But that was the kind of, that was really it. There wasn't a whole lot of rewriting necessary because, as Mary Jo said, uh, Brian really understood, uh, understood Han and understood all the characters, really. When I went and re-listened to the radio dramas recently, I had forgotten that it starts out basically with Luke very much like um, his father with a race and – souping up the engine of what is skyhopper right it is yeah the, the the first the first two chapters are our uh, first two episodes are really yeah. brilliant because they 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 give you leia's story you know a few moments before the movie opens up and then they give you luke's story a few moments or days before things are opening up and so you get to know those two characters in a really in, in a way up to that point that we did not know them that way before and richard and and with Richard's production and his ideas about expanding the story and then Brian's script, that really, you really get to see a side of those characters. And then to have it voiced by Mark Hamill only adds to that authenticity of it. Yeah, the first episode, um, we get the story of Luke on Tatooine with his friends, and his friends are making fun of him for listening to that Academy recruitment tape. And that was in the Marvel Comics, um, because Marvel Comics came out... Those came out April, um, so a month before the film. And so there were scenes that um, they had deleted from from the film. And so Brian Daly is able to expand on the Marvel comics, and then fans are able to hear Mark Hamill's voice, you know, voice those scenes. Yeah, especially the comics had really had the scenes with the uh, with the with the with the friends teasing him, you know, and him him. You know, and now we can see those scenes, of course, they're on the deleted portions of the Blu-rays and stuff. But we the only place you could you saw those were in the comics and you saw Luke kind of racing into town. And Brian even expands that even more. And you get to see Luke 
even before then, you know, listening to the tape. And it was nice because you, as a, as a fan, you got to said with Mary Joseph, you got to see what you only like saw little pictures of, you know, like maybe in the storybook, the storybook had a, a, a couple images of Biggs, you know, on Tatooine and the comic had the scenes where Lucas getting kind of teased by Fixer. Um, but now you got to hear it and hear it with the, with the sound effects and everything. It was really a great addition. So with, Mark Hamill's voice being in the radio dramas, I remember you saying there were a lot more original cast members intended to be in the radio drama, right? But there were some issues and, and it didn't all work out as well as they had hoped. Yeah, that's right. Um, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher were both, um, they had signed contracts and they both knew about the radio drama, wanted to be in it. Um, they felt kind of possessive in a way about their characters, like loving the character of Han and Leia and wanting to play them, but there were scheduling conflicts. Um, so with Harrison Ford um, filming Raiders of the Lost Ark um, took him away from doing the radio drama. We found a newspaper article. It was from uh, March 3rd, 1981, where they say, quote, scheduling conflicts prevented Carrie Fisher, Alec Guinness, James Earl Jones, and Harrison Ford from playing their original parts. But Perry King did a great, I mean, he was, he was, he tried out for the role. Right. You can see his audition on YouTube for Han. Yeah. And then he yeah. would, he would play Han, you know, he did a good job playing Han in, in it's not, not always, always a thankless task to step into another actor, especially an iconic actor in an iconic role. And um, he did great making it his own, but also it felt like, it felt like Han Solo. And part of that too is Brian's writing. I think he knew, he really knew how to write for Han, I think. Didn't he say something about Han having the only character that changed or something? Well, that was the reason he chose Han, was because he was the only one who made a moral choice in the film. To only concentrate on voice, to only exist through your voice, does free you in a way because you have one area that you're working on. It's physically more exhausting than, than doing film. I think because the breaks, there are very few breaks. We shoot a large section at a time or tape a large section at a time. Perry King played the part of Han Solo, a hotshot pilot hired by Luke and Ben Kenobi to get them off the planet Tatooine. Yeah, we put a, so much physical effort into being there by the mic. I mean, it's the difference between my talking like this and the difference between my talking like this, you know. I, I always, if anything, I think I put almost too much energy into it. I, uh, I get carried away a few times. John Madden, the director, has had to calm me down and pull me back. Yeah, it's, when you listen to it, I feel like with, like you're saying, the music and the sound effects, you're, I feel you're willing to, the, they all do such an amazing job, and if you can tell that, well, that's not Alec Guinness or that's not Harrison Ford. You're, I don't know. I'm like totally willing to go along with the ride of, yeah, this, who Perry King is capturing the essence of Han Solo. And, and a lot of that's the, the words, right? So if the words sound right and the actor's good, you can picture in your mind that character. So Anne Sachs, who plays Princess Leia, is so good. And that torture scene, which I think, isn't that the only one that they received? That's the only one they received um, negative complaints. Because that is, it's a pretty, it's an intense sequence. And, and it even, it takes on even more meaning now when you listen to it, because we now know, of course, the relationship that exists between Vader and Leia. But I mean, he really shows you the torture scene. And, 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 and of course, in the film, all they do is they show you the, the droid coming close to Leia, then the door comes down and it's left to your imagination. But you get to hear the words and you hear her pain. 
And she did such a great job with that. That meant, I think those complaints are those complaints were actually a, a a compliment. You know that 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 was so intense in the way that they did it. Her and Brock Peters did those scene, those scenes together, and that's you know John Madden's direction, and it's also Brian Brian's words and and uh, Ann Sachs and that collaboration between um, you know Ann and Brock Peters, and it's just really you know it's it's a scene almost you you as a parent sometimes you I I used to wonder whether or not I would want my son to listen to that scene. And Brian was also good for writing um, for C-3PO. And Anthony Daniels returned to do Return of the Jedi only if Brian Daly was going to write because um, Anthony Daniels had said that only two people could write for C-3PO, George Lucas and Brian Daly, because he's able to capture C-3PO's um, odd mix of humorless, humorless comedy and um, bleak but loving personality. <laughs> and he also... Um, if you notice, like C-3PO, because he's a droid, he doesn't breathe. And so Brian had to write short lines where Anthony Daniels didn't have to take a breath when speaking. Never thought about that. That's <laughs> But that makes a lot of sense. It would be a little weird to hear 3PO take a breath mid-sentence. I actually feel it, it's one of the most uh, creative mediums there is because it's works in the mind uh, the, the problem with film is that it's very much what the director and the cameraman have chosen for you to see if they want you to look at a close-up of somebody's thumbnail covering 70 feet of screen you have no choice but to look at that in radio you can sit there and you can make the scenery how you want it you can develop the visual side completely inside your head and therefore it's stimulating therefore the amount of enjoyment you get is reciprocal to the amount of effort you put into it, and you have to put a lot of effort if you're listening. And that's why the plays are enjoyable. Yeah, one of the great things about Brian for, I mean, he wasn't able to do that on Return of the Jedi because uh, Mary Jo will probably talk about that later, but Brian, of course, had, had cancer when they were making Return of the Jedi. But um, when they were doing Star Wars, Brian was able to be at the uh, studios in Los Angeles where they were recording and he could fix anything that needed to be fixed. And he also wrote, so he could fix like Anthony Daniels dialogue if it needed to be shortened. And that was helpful to have the real writer there, you know, who understood the whole project. And, but he also wrote wild lines for characters too, to, to, so that there would be authenticity, right? Did you want to tell? tell yeah, that? he would write, cause he wanted there to be that ambiance of that background chatter. And so he didn't want that left up to the actors who might not know Star Wars. And he didn't want, most likely an audience, someone listening is not going to hear it. But he, just in case, he didn't want actors saying, oh, let's do lunch. Have your Ognot call my Ognot. So he wrote those <laughs> kind of background chatter lines um, that he called wild lines. And a lot of those, too, when you do hear them, uh, he brought in as, you know, he spent that time in the military. So especially you hear that in the. Empire Strikes Back radio drama where the it, it really sounds like you're listening to military people talk. Um, and it's he, he uses the right language because he was able to base it on his own experiences. But he'd also he'd also throw in things that were funny. There's that there's a there's a wild line that he wrote where the you can, you can barely almost hear it. But the basic idea is that they're missing a piece of a, a the, the technicians are missing a piece of technology. And it turns out that it's Chewbacca who took it. And before the guy knows that it's Chewbacca, he's like, ah, who does that Solo think he is? And who, you know, they think they can come and take anything. And then the guy 
the guy says, well, you know, the Wookiee took it. And he's like, well, you know, we don't really need that piece, you know? (laughs) And so you got a lot of Brian's humor in some of those uh, wild lines. When I was listening to it again, I was so impressed with the, the, especially some of the droid sound effects. Um, They, they had Ben Burt sound effects, but like when Luke is talking to the Treadwell droid, or I I think of the part where Leia is trying to find R2 and first she talks to that other droid, what was Ben Burt's involvement in the post-production, or was it was it someone else putting in some of those sound effects, those uniquely Star Wars sound effects? Yeah, that was anything that was original to any any sound, and there was even a little bit of like original extension of music and and thing and and that needed to be done because of the the needs of the narr- the, the narrative. Um, that was all done by Tom Vaguely. So Tom Tom augmented. And, and did original sound effects and pieced together original sound effects. Um, that was really all Tom. Um, ben, I think, was there sort of in a helping role. And, and of course, they used his library. But uh, by this time, he would have been really deep in, 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 in helping to make Empire Strikes Back, uh, Ben Burt. So um, this was, really all that is Tom vaguely using Ben's original materials and then having to create some of his own. You know, the, the, when when you just think of the layering, there's a, there's a great sort of um, behind the scenes moment, and it's them. You can kind of hear uh, the audio of this exists, so you can you can hear John Madden sort of directing Mark Hamill. You know, like, hey, you're you're in a land speeder, right? And there's a lot of no, there's going to be a lot of noise, so they're already sort of thinking while they're in the studio what the sound effects are going to be. They're not, they're not playing when the actors are doing their role, but they kind of know, well, look, there's going to be a, a loud engine sound and so on. So you hear John Madden telling Mark Hamill, you can't be too loud. Like, be, be louder than you think you can be. And then, then when you hear that piece pieced with the sound effects that are added by Tom Vaguely, how well that all works together. Um, it really shows you the imagination that you, they, had to, they had to sort of picture... Or, or hear what this was going to sound like at the end while they were making it. And in a way, um, as, a, as an editor, as, a, as the technician putting everything together, Tom Vaguely is really the editor. I mean, he's really, as, as George Lucas says, the editor really is the one who puts the movie together. And so he's picking, you know, along with John Mann, which, which of these vocal performances are the best, which one goes best with the sequence, which gives you the most emotion, and, and pulling that all together. And so Tom Vaguely deserves a lot of credit too for the for the for how how good the radio drama turned out, especially the the immersive quality of it. Considering that you know they had good technology then, certainly compared to the 1930s and 40s radio dramas, but you know he doesn't he didn't have any of the kind of mixing equipment that exists today. Yeah, I would imagine just the technical issues of editing together all the different dialogue takes and sound effects and and timing and all that sort of thing that you need to make it feel real like you're really you know listening to star wars is a lot more difficult than it seems with the yeah like you're saying with the technology of the time like they couldn't just go on a computer screen and slide a sound effect around like a lot of work to put that together and make sure everything sounded great and and to do things like so brock peters who plays darth vader of course very famous uh, actor, um, probably most famous for To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but he, he plays, you know, obviously Luke's dad, but he also plays Ben Sisko's dad if you're a Star Trek fan. So um, he's, a, he's somebody the genre, sci-fi genre community knew 
and knows um, for and uh, for a lot of his performances. He was in Star Trek Six. He was the sort of bad Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek Four and Six. But he played Darth Vader, and when they recorded him, they had to put him in a. They put him and Anthony Daniels, I believe, both were put in a booth, so they had to re- be recorded, ex- you know, separate than the other actors because they they didn't want any. They needed to have the voice be really clean because they had to augment the voice. And they had to make the, the voice sound. In Vader's case, they had to add the breathing over it. And then in Anthony Daniels' case, they had to sort of mechanize the voice somewhat to make it sound exactly like C-3PO. So that all those things that they're thinking of as they're recording, and recording really quickly at, at the Westlake Studios, wasn't that where they right, recorded? Right, it was the same theater where Michael Jackson um, did Thriller. Yeah, so they, they recorded at a famous studio in L.A., but they only had, I think it was a week something like that uh, right. to, to record. And and that's why they originally wanted Orson Welles to be the narrator, but they didn't go with him for two reasons. He was expensive and he was had a reputation for being a perfectionist and they didn't have the time to just do take after take to get it to where he was happy with it. But that's a great example of, um, so there's a, a director we admire called Nicholas Meyer who uh, is uh, Star Trek fans might know him. He directed and wrote Star Trek two. He wrote Star Trek four and wrote and directed, co-wrote and directed Star Trek six. And, and of course he's done a whole host of other things, but um, Nick, Nick Meyer has this idea of um, that art thrives on limitations that when you get a limitation, it can actually make the art better. Uh, that limitation of not having the narrator um, and having really the narrator in Star Wars um, uh, which was Ken Hiller, is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. So Ken Hiller, who narrates the Star Wars radio drama, really only come and he, and he was great. And he passed away unfortunately uh, as well. But he he com- only comes in at the beginning and the end. So he kind of he k- k- catches you up a little bit at the start. He serves as sort of the the, the crawl, the, the the audio version of the the crawl at the start of a Star Wars movie. And then he he gives you a little bit of a tease at the end, you know, of what might be coming or summarizing things but that's it he doesn't appear anywhere else in the radio drama and the concept of you know had they had orson wells they would have wanted to have used him more and they would have had more narration and i think what the radio drama benefits from having really only introductory and concluding narration and the rest of it has to be carried by your imagination in a sophisticated 24-track recording studio at minnesota public radio in st paul Post-production sound mixer Tom Vigley reviews the R2-D2 tape and a vast collection of dialogue, music, and sound, searching for just the right elements to bring Star Wars to life on radio. Yeah, it is a puzzle. It's a puzzle that you walk into a room that has a bunch of equipment in it, a big box full of tapes, and a piece of paper that says that this is called a script that is, in this case, in many scenes, a very rudimentary roadmap. Um, for what's supposed to happen. I always think it's fascinating that when when we listen to the radio drama today, it's great to remember that they only had that original movie for for reference. It's not like today where there's, you know, countless cartoon episodes and so many films and what does Star Wars sound like? Well, that's an easy question, but this we only had the 1977 film for them to look at and I I always find that so admirable and so fascinating. Yeah, that's like there's um. So again, with with the comic, there was the scene. The comic, because both the comic book and and the novel. I think Mary Jo mentioned this. 
they came out before the film came out. So the, the novelization comes out six months before the film. And the, the first comic, I think, is about a month or so before the movie's out where you get the first issue. And so, but there's, so Jabba is in the comic book. And because they didn't have time to excise these things out by the, because they needed to send it to the printers and so on. So Jabba's in the comic book and, and doesn't look anything like Jabba that we know, but it's the Jabba, it doesn't even look like the Jabba that they were going to put over um, uh, the actor named Declan Mulholland, who played Jabba in, in the scenes that they did film for Star Wars. They had this comic book idea. They had, they had a novel that had Jabba in there. So they put Jabba in the radio drama. But that was another one of the things where Lucasfilm stepped in and said, you know what, don't use Jabba because we're going we, we're, we're gonna to be, Jabba's going to play a role in the future films. We don't want to box ourselves in uh at all and uh and so they kept the concept but they changed the character's name to heater instead of java they 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 were able to kind of keep this the heart of that sequence but it java's mentioned with the greedo part but heater's the one who kind of threatens han by the millennium falcon and and they were also supposed to have the scene with C-3PO and R2, right, uh, meeting? Well, there was um, a piece of marketing for the radio drama in the newspaper saying that the radio drama was going to introduce or show us how C-3PO and R2 meet. But Brian said that he knew that there was a, he had heard a rumor that George wanted to have them in all nine of the movies. So he purposely did not write their meetings because he wanted to leave that for you know, leave that open for the sake of continuity. And Brian, Brian was dependent on, he had the novel, he had the comics, he had Splinter of the Mind's Eye, he had obviously his knowledge of his own books. Um, and he, and did, he had, he had uh, footage of George Lucas yeah. actually acting out the different roles. So there was a big interview where Lucas had, had sort of talked about his, his vision of the characters and stuff. So, But there really, nothing like the story, there was no, you know, Lucasfilm story group to turn to. There was no, um, you know, volumes of, you know, great pieces of, you know, Pablo Hidalgo or, or, or Steve Sansweet uh, resource material. None of that existed at that time. And, and, and really Brian, I mean, he, he wrote so many things that became important to star Wars, even, even now, even in, in some of the, so it was Brian and his books that talked about what named those stripes on Hans pants as the Carillion blood stripes. It was Brian who in his novel has Han, uh, he says something along the lines of I, I shot first. Yes. Right? Yeah. So he, he has, he actually has a scene in the books way before any of us as fans are debating it, where Han talks about how he likes to shoot first. I mean, he knew that character before we knew we'd have a problem with the concept of that. Um, you know, to 15 years before you have the special editions and, the whole idea of sort of a Wookiee life that George had came up with that idea, but it was really Brian that kind of fit that into the pieces. And there's even like, there's, he is so, so important to particularly the character of Han Solo, Brian, that in the solo movie, there's several little nods to Brian. And one of them, uh, the biggest nod to Brian is when you look at the bad guy, when you're, when you're in uh, Dryden's um, Dryden Voss's uh, ship and he has all his trinkets that he's collected uh, one of them is a is a skull, and the skull is actually Zim the Despot, who is the bad guy. Uh, well, is is the is the character you see on the cover of Han Solo in the Lost Legacy, and that's that's meant to be a tribute to Brian Daly within the solo film. <laughs> 
No, that will be more than satisfactory. I'm not looking for anything elaborate, Chewbacca. Just quick passage to Alderaan. He doesn't like you, boy. I don't either. You just watch yourself. Sorry. Uh, Chewbacca, is your Captain Solo available to discuss terms of hiring? <laughs> It's re- they've recorded it. the The radio drama comes out. What was the reaction when the Star Wars radio drama then finally comes out on NPR? Well, it was enormously successful. So it premieres March twelfth, nineteen eighty one, and they got fifty five thousand phone calls. They're only able to answer twelve thousand of those. And they get 10,000 letters. And many of them are from first-time listeners who had never tuned into NPR before. And Frank Mankiewicz of NPR credits Star Wars with the increase in donations and the increase in the perception of NPR programming. You know, they saw a 40% increase um, in their audience in general and 135% increase just for dramas. Yeah, in many ways, I think it was, it planted a seed in the minds of a lot of eight and nine and 10 year olds, especially the people that we, we talk to, even in the Star Trek community, if we're, if we're talking to podcasts, uh, 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 people have podcasts or fans who've gone into audio work or things like that, um, that radio drama in, in a way, in, I think, played a role in keeping audio alive because it introduced a whole new generation of people to the idea that radio could be more than just music uh, and more than just a three-minute or four-minute pop song on the radio. And really, for I, I, I was part of that generation, so I, I saw Star Wars when I was 10 years old in 1977, and nine years old, I should say, in 1977. And I, and, but I, you know, for me, the radio was only uh, music, I, I never would have even conceived that that you would listen to the radio to for anything other than news, maybe, and and music, and and even news wasn't that big on the radio at that time. So Star Wars opened up a whole concept that oh my gosh, you can do audio based um, storytelling. And so I think a lot of the pot the the acceptance of podcasts today, particularly among our students, podcasts are huge. They they are they are very important cultural. Uh, communication. And, and, and it's not only just the type of social media, it's really, in some ways, it's become from, for many of our students, their news source, the way that they do research, the way that they learn about things that are both fun and also historical. And, and you guys know that, you know, you, obviously you, you're living it. And so I think that today's podcast owe a debt of gratitude. And there's value too with radio dramas and podcasts, because you're using your imagination to picture all of the action and so, therefore, you're going to remember that story for years or maybe forever versus when you go to a movie theater, you're more passive because everything is happening in front of you and everything is created. You don't have to use your imagination. And so you might not remember that movie, you know, say a year after listening to it. You'll remember it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I really prefer I, it sort of sounds strange, but if, if I had a choice I, mean, I certainly don't want to see uh, Rise of Skywalker on, on on radio first. You know, I want to see it in theater. You know, uh, but now I, I actually gravitate more towards the radio dramas if I'm, you know, if I want something on Star Wars for background rather than the movie. Uh, partially because 
the radio drama by by its its essence, you don't have to look at anything. Um, whereas the Star Wars movie, a lot of times, if I'm if I if I put it on, I think fellow fans know what I'm talking about. You, it's like a comfort. You know, you put on Star Wars when you're home and you're working on. You know, you're building something. You throw Star Wars on <laughs> the TV. You know, and you have it on with you as your as your friend. But you know, you, you you're hearing more music and sound effects if you're if you have the movie on. And whereas with the radio drama, it's sort of meant to be obviously just listen to. But I also think Brian really gave us um, a, a, a more intimate look at these characters. And I always think of the scene in, in the Empire Strikes Back radio dramas where Han and Luke, uh, who almost have no screen time together at all in Empire. I mean, that was by, by design. I mean, Empire is structured similar to Last Jedi, uh, where the characters are separated from each other. And uh, you separate R2 and C-3PO and you separate Luke and, and from, from really everyone except for, for R2. Um, and, and you separate out your characters that way. In the radio drama, we, we get to spend a good deal of time with Han and Luke um, after Han rescues Luke. And they have just a wonderful conversation um, with each other. In fact, I really encourage fans to also, if you love the radio dramas uh, or love Star Wars, to also pick up the, the book versions of Brian's scripts, because those are slightly different, um, both because of editing takes and just editing in general. So they're, they're, they're a little bit expanded, the scripts, and you get even a little bit more. But like the Empire radio drama starts off with rebels on a mission and they're, they're sort of destroyed. And, and that plays a role in a little bit in the conversation between Han and, and Luke in the script part doesn't play as much in the actual radio drama. But but even with what you have in the radio drama, you get to, to see these, you, you understand that, that these guys are brothers and, uh, symbolically and that they, that they love one another. And you really get to see that in, in the way that Brian writes that scene with them. And, and, and that's missing from Empire. You, you just get, I mean, what really do you get? You get, you get Han talking at Luke because he's, you know, frozen popsicle when he, when he, you know, and, and then you get a little bit of that sequence when they're together and Luke's recovering and a, and a little look at one another when, when Luke goes off into his X-wing, but there isn't a whole lot between them, but the radio drama is able to expand that. And, and that was, I think that's what makes them really special is, and even Return of the Jedi, which is a very truncated radio drama, you still get to know the characters more and more. And, and, uh, Mary Jo, did you want to talk a little bit about Jedi and, and what happened with Brian with that one, too? Yeah. Um, so Empire Strikes Back comes out February 14th, 1982 on radio. And then there were plans to do Return of the Jedi the following year in 1983. But for whatever reason, the funding wasn't there. And so um, it wasn't until 1993 when Highbridge Audio put out the um, cassette and CD radio dramas, um, Star Wars and Empire, that those were so popular that Highbridge Audio decides to fund the Return of the Jedi radio drama. And so um, Brian is asked to write that. But unfortunately, this time around, he's not able to be there in the studio because he's um, fighting his own battle with pancreatic cancer. And on the last day of recording Return of the Jedi, all the actors decide to make a special tape for Brian and they want to let him know how much they love him, their affection, admiration for him. And so they make that recording and they mail it off to him, but Brian won't be able to listen to it because he ends up dying six hours after they finish taping. 
R2? R2-D2, what are you doing here in an empty studio? Rehearsing for your next scene? But R2, we finished recording The Return of the Jedi. Oh, don't be sad, R2. We had a lot of fun, didn't we? And all because of Master Brian. Yes, I think he did an excellent job, but... Well, I think he gave you rather too many lines. Just you watch your language. Oh, that is a good idea, R2. Um, let me see. Um, um, uh, hello? Oh, uh, um, ready? Master Brian, R2 and I want to say that it has been a distinct honor and a joy to work with you. With our thanks, we send you our very best wishes. You can't have another retake, R2. Oh, really? The trouble with you is Hollywood has affected your circuits. And so, and he, and and he had had the idea of the last that when Return of the Jedi came out, he was so excited about the idea of being able to write the radio drama uh, for Jedi. Uh, I think even him and James, James went, they went on a trip. Uh, I, um, I forgot to which country they went to, but they were in another country and they, they actually had a tape of Return of the Jedi with them and they were showing it to the people there. And, but they, he, they were so excited. He was so excited about the idea of writing Return of the Jedi. He crafted the last line. He had the idea of what the last line of the radio drama should be. And he was able to, to have that. And we actually have his handwritten, his, um, uh, his partner, Lucia Robeson, who, who has written just an, an invaluable, incredible person sharing so much of Brian's uh, story with us and, and her story with him. Um, in fact, the, 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 as a quick, funny aside, she's a historical novelist and Brian was a science fiction author. And when she writes, she would write uh, on a computer and a word processor back then, and he used to only write on an old-fashioned typewriter, which is funny, right? The historical novelist is using modern technology, <laughs> and the science fiction author is using old-fashioned technology. But um, she uh, supplied us with, uh, we got a, a copy of his handwritten uh, note of what he wanted the last line to be, and it is what the last line is of the, of the radio drama. So it was, nice that, it was nice that at the end of his life he was able to uh, finally achieve that goal. And people think that that is what kept him alive those last few months was his um, writing of the script. Yeah, Brian was just a great, I mean, he, he was, I think any one of us would have, we would have just felt at home having him at our houses and just, you know, uh, hanging out with him. He really was, he was, he was one of us. He was a, he was a fan. He loved Star Wars. Uh, Mary Jo told the story about him and James uh, uh, Lucino seeing uh, Star Wars, at, you know, in 1977, back before he's writing any kind of Star Wars, and just sitting there and talking about it, and 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 being you know moved by it, and how that was what they had always wanted to see in a science fiction film, and him growing up collecting comic books, and his dad had really introduced him to the wonders of space, right? His uh, what was it, the story? His yeah, they didn't have a lot of money growing up, so his dad would just put out a blanket on the lawn, and they would sit outside and his parents would tell him about constellations and he gets his love of, uh, of reading from his mother and 
space and science fiction from his father. So he was just, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, I really wish, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan as he also wrote the Tron novelization. I mean, uh, you know, obviously Mary Jo mentioned the Robotech novels and, but um, there's not enough Brian Daly uh, work out there. And to, I would have been amazed to see what he would have done and kept contributing to the star Wars um, had he been able to, to be here now. And he, and he should be, he, you know, he was way too young when he passed away. He was only 48. Wow. Well, I, I love that his novels are still out there. I don't know how many Star Wars groups and things I'm on on the internet. And I feel like once a month, I always see someone, especially when the solo film came out, d- discovering these amazing Han Solo novels and being like, these were written, you know, checking the copyright date and what, 1979, you know, <laughs> and in the radio dramas are, I feel like still being discovered by, um, audiences today and with the like we were saying like the the boom of podcasting and i recommend anyone if you're a fan of star wars and the radio drum in that format go check them out because they sound just as fresh as they did back then yeah and they sound you know that the, the there's a there's a, a sort of a fourth hidden lost i guess you could call it radio drama if you want to call it that by brian for star wars so once people work their way through, if they've never listened to the uh, radio dramas, the you know that that's nice because that'll take you a good you know uh, <laughs> you'll be you're good for about twenty five hours there. Um, but when when you're done with that, um, if you seek out something called the mission Rebel Mission to Ord Mentel, which was a a, a set of Buena Vista Records Disney type story on record. That was written by Brian. Now, there's no um, original actors on that, and it's not as sophisticated as the radio drama, but it tells the story of that one line in Empire Strikes Back when when Tan says that that bounty hunter we, we ran into uh, and Ord Mantel changed my mind. This tells the story of that, and that's written by Brian. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a great fun adventure too. And it has this, uh, you know, Forza doesn't have the original music and, you know, it's, it's definitely a different kind of thing, but at least it's another little piece of Brian expanding the star Wars story for us. And, um, and, the, and I love that the, we, which I presumed when I was a kid just meant Chewie and Han also included Luke and Leia and C-3PO and R2-D2, that they all ran into that bounty hunter. So I loved the way that uh, Brian added to that missing piece of Star Wars history. When, when, when you guys were talking earlier, I was struck by something, and it's, just, it's so true that Star Wars, at its best, is such an explosion of imagination. And you hear all these stories of filmmakers and artists and people star wars inspired me to do countless number of things and either in some form of entertainment or another and uh the audio drama is being so reliant on imagination to tell its story and it's it's a perfect marriage i guess is what i'm trying to say is the uniqueness of star wars and the combination with the imagination it inspires yeah, it really does. You know, the the you know you think of the the zeitgeist around 1981. So you know, most Americans don't have a VCR yet. If you do own Star Wars on Betamax or something like that, a videotape, a movie cost you 120. Um, you know, the very first film ever priced 
for the home market was actually Star Trek II. It was a test to see if Americans would buy a film. And they, they priced it at, at, uh, at uh, you know, in, in, at like $30. And it sold. They So they were hoping to sell 60,000 units, and they sold 120,000 units. And because that sold so well, the movie industry decided that the idea of what, because the original model was you priced a film at like $200 and it would be sold to rental stores. And then that rental store would, would rent it out, you know, a hundred times and make their money back um, and make a profit. But the concept wasn't people were, were not going to own these films at home. It, you know, I, I knew a few friends who had early, very early, you know, technologies and they had it, but I mean, most people didn't. So if you wanted to relive Star Wars at home, um, in between the films and, and in any original way, you, you were limited. You, you had the story of, which was 45 minutes. Um, you had the comic books. You had the novel. Um, you had the toys. I mean, you could read. And that's why the toys were, were so culturally important back then, because they were the they, they, they played the same role as the radio drama as imagination and allowed you to continue the adventures at home as a kid when there was really very little other content for you to continue your love of Star Wars. And the radio dramas just hit at the perfectly right moment. Um, so I know many, many people who recorded those radio dramas, you know, put them on, put them on cassette tape. Because um, even cassette tape itself, cassette tapes were only about six or seven years old at that time. I mean, it's, it was, it's really hard to wrap our brain around the technology that existed. And but that you would record, you would record those, and then you could listen to them on demand. And so it became a type of on-demand technology before there was one. But it was also one where you really had to be engaged in it. It wasn't something that you could just sort of stream on your phone and not really pay attention to. You, if you were going to get anything out of it, you had to pay attention. You had to picture it in your mind, and then, like you said, have that imagination. So it just it hit at the right time, I think, and 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 was, as you said, the perfect combination of what what we needed as fans at that time to keep star wars going well it's neat too that at maybe first thought you think that star wars is so visual how's it going to work without the visuals but the thing that one of the things that makes the star wars movies so great is that like we said earlier that with the music and the sound effects and audio that even watching the films with your eyes closed there's so much going on to make you feel like you're in that universe that they really are kind of the perfect vehicle for an audio drama because just hearing star wars sounds puts you into that universe and the fact that you get more of what you loved was just what everybody needed yeah and, and you know the nice thing is you had that um you know i mean i guess if you're listening to like a raymond chandler radio drama I, I mean i would probably picture uh i had heard rumors liam neeson was going to play the character again i don't know if they ever did that or not but that'd be kind of cool to have qui-gon play the role but uh <laughs> uh, I thought he was dead, but I guess uh, Qui-Gon. But I think that the uh, I would probably picture Humphrey Bogart. I think anytime you 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 know, Star Wars was great because it, it, the radio drama was helped by the fact that even if you had never seen the film, you probably knew what uh, Darth Vader looked like because you. I mean, you, if you were alive, then um, you know <laughs> you, you 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 had to know who Darth Vader was. I mean, even if you didn't know, you've never seen the film. That helped, I think, people visualize the film better, that you knew what an X-Wing looked like, then you knew what an R2-D2 looked like. So it sort of worked really well, but then you were still the director, right? You were, because there were new scenes, 
and because there were new environments that you never got to see before, like Princess Leia's house, right? So one of the sequences you get to see is they're on Alderaan and she's having dinner with Lord Tyon and her father, who's only mentioned in the original Star Wars. And, you know, you, you don't have that. When you're listening to it in 1981, you're not picturing Jimmy Smith's, right, as as the father. You're 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 you you are picturing whoever you want to put in that role. And and you're picturing well, what does Alderaan look like? And and because all you ever see of it in the original Star Wars is the external the planetary view of it. So you have no idea like what's the design of the planet. And you get to put all that you so you're the set director, you're the art director, you're the director, you're the I mean, you're the casting director, you're everything. And that's why the radio dramas I think are are so memorable. And like you said, none of it would be we would we be talking about it today if it wasn't for the words of Brian Daly? Yeah, Brian is really. I mean, I think he. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, one of my I have a, I have several pet peeves in life. Who doesn't? <laughs> but I have several. One of my pet peeves is, um, and people probably think I'm insane for having this pet peeve, but. I hate like when you watch like Hulu or Netflix or anything, and it's like credits don't mean anything. They they you they default to not showing you the credits, and so I you know I get it. I you know credits last a minute, two minutes, three minutes. If it's a movie, it could be five minutes. You know, and and Hollywood has to resort to tricks like putting in after credit sequences to make us stay to watch the credits um, of a Marvel movie or something like that, but. I've always loved credits. I loved credits because number one, you would hear the soundtrack unfiltered. I loved credits because you could see who made the movie or who made the TV show. I, when I was a kid, I used to read the liner notes of the album and see like, Oh, who was the, you know, who, who made the, who was the musicians on this? Cause I really think that those are the people that as much as the actors, you know, and acting is of course a very difficult job and, and I certainly wouldn't be able to do it, but I, the real people that deserve credit that never get any credit uh, are the behind the scenes people uh, are the writers and the directors and the, 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 the crafts people and the, the, the ones who make the sets and the costumes and the, and, and how much that adds to a character. So many actors talk about how prosthetics and props and costumes inform their performance. And so how important, you know, John Malo is to star Wars and how important Ben Burt is the Star Wars and John Williams is the Star Wars and Stuart Freeborn is the Star Wars. And, and we're lucky in Star Wars because I think the fan community, we get that. We, we, we love those guys. We, we will wait in line to go see a panel, you know, um, by Rob Rito, but not, not too much outside of that in our culture. Our culture is kind of like, oh, credits, you skip that on Netflix. You, you go automatically to the next episode. You have to I have to take an extra step to keep the credits on, on Hulu. You know, I have to go to my remote. And, and I think that that's a shame. I, I hate it when TV shows speed up credits, you know, they do that in cable a lot where you're watching a movie and they speed up the credits and you can't even read them. So what's the point? Why even, why are you even showing that? Um, those people deserve credit. Those people helped make that film. And, and in fact, the film wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for there. In fact, in sociology, there's a great Ted talk too, where someone talks about this, but there's a concept called the, the, anonymous, the anonymous extraordinary person. Um, and I've always remembered that from the, from the Ted talk where, where, you know, there's, the, there's the people who deliver the speech and then there's the people who write the speech and everybody remembers the person who delivers it, uh, but never the person who writes it. And I think that 
you know, that was really our motivation for doing the, doing the presentation and doing the research besides being fans and loving it. And, you know, who's not excited to talk to Richard Toskin. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, that, that was thrilling for me to talk to a person who was there um, and responsible for it. But we love the idea of being able to share with fellow fans a, a celebration of the people like Brian who worked behind the scenes who maybe don't get the kind of credit that they deserve. And I, I feel like we feel the same way. And that's we invited you on because when we were sitting there in Chicago, we were like, other people need to hear <laughs> the, this incredible story of Brian and the radio dramas. And, yeah, I mean, that's what I love about you, like, like your podcast and, 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 the, and the Star Wars fan community, because we, you know, we're interested in who turned the lights off, you know, that <laughs> night on the stage. Like, I'll, wait, right. I'll wait in line to get his autograph, you know, I mean, right. I, was, I was on the hunt for Lauren Peterson, you know, I mean, I was, you know, that I think we as a community, the fan community in Star Wars, we get it, because I think, because of, because of what you had mentioned, that's, that Star Wars touches the imagination in such a way that we want to know everything about it. And we want to know how did that fake thing get made? How did something that only exists in a person's imagination, how did it go from the mind to a model or in today's world, a CG model? And how did it, how did it get designed? And I think we, I think we as a community understand that. I, I, I hope, I, I wish that the rest of the, the fan communities out there and just, communities in general would appreciate as much as you appreciate the ball players, you appreciate the, the janitor who cleans up the, the stadium who makes it possible for us to sit there and enjoy the game, you know, and I, I don't know how much of that's out there, but in star Wars, we'd want to know the janitor's name and we'd want to like, we want to photo op with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, the most important thing that I think I would hope that it will bring about is to really awaken people to the idea of what radio can do with the dramatic form particularly, uh, of what an incredible experience it can be. Anybody who's ever listened to radio drama will testify to the fact that a play that you hear on radio will be in your, in your mind, you know, 12 years later, you'll remember it vividly. And the reason that you remember it vividly is because you've done the work, is because, is because it lives in your imagination. A phrase has come to mind in working on this project, which is, you may think you've seen the movie, wait till you hear it. All right, so we've got some rapid-fire questions that we do for when we have guests on, so we'll do this really quick with John and Mary Jo here. First one for both of you, you I, so you're both, we've, we've seen from Toys That Made Us, huge collectors. Easy first question, what's your favorite Star Wars action figure, both of you? Yoda. I love the the Gigantor Han Solo muscle bound uh, 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 <laughs> He Man version that was done in the Kenner re release in the Power of the Force line. Okay. <laughs> it's funny that that figure is right in front of me right now, and right when you started to say that, my eyes knew right where to go. I was like, there he is. As sociology professors, what culture in the Star Wars universe is most interesting to you from a society perspective? Mm. I like I like Camino because I like I don't think we know enough about them and I'm not sure if they're good or bad. And so that would be an interesting world to explore and a people to explore. And they also kind of look like each other a little bit. And so I wonder how much of that plays into their cloning philosophy. And so I think there's a lot to kind of uh, explore there. 
And for me, I teach um, deviants. And so I would say like the underworld of Coruscant. Okay. Good answers. <laughs> what Star Wars alien would be most at home in the next door neighbor world of Star Trek? Mm, that's a great question. I have my answer right at hand just because of a comic I read today. And, and, and this is not my fellow Star Trek fans. I love Star Trek, but I would say Admiral Holdo because that's a total Star Trek thing. Just change the color of the hair and then she's an alien. And I just think that that sort of, that fits into the Star Trek, like low tech kind of alien world, you know, on, uh, I'm thinking of like Captain Kirk and, and, and the gamesters of Triskelion and the, you know, how is she an alien? She's got green hair. She's an alien. So, uh, <laughs> that's what I was, I would say that would be my answer. You know, the, and you say, I could imagine Holdo, Picard or Kirk, they go to a star base and Holdo is the commanding officer and it would make total sense. Fits Absolutely. right in. Yeah. Oh, it's hard to say for our character, but I would say, like, in terms of an alien, I guess, like, the Wampa is like a Mugatu. <laughs> I mean, just an appearance. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, okay. very lovable. They're both lovable until they rip your arm off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as, as avid collectors of, of Star Wars and Star Trek stuff, what is something from either, I guess, either franchise that, they never made that you wish there was an action figure or a toy or something of. I always thought a great action figure or a great collectible would be the probe from Star Trek Four, mm-hmm. which you could just make by, I guess, freezing a ho ho. But I, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I always thought like that. Like I always like. In fact, somebody at the Star Trek convention we went there this year. They dressed as the probe. I mean, it's a great... It's and the a, whale. And the whale. They dressed the probe and the whale together. And I thought that was such a great... It was very clever. It was such a clever thing. I mean, it's just a log, and yet it, it's this interesting sort of plot device. And I thought, that would be a cool thing to just have. And people would be like, why do you have the log? Like, is that from the is that from Twin Peaks? Is that the log lady's log? What is that? Why do you have that thing there? And Or why do you have a ho-ho um, in, uh, <laughs> in your Star Trek collection? But I always thought that that would be a cool... Um, a cool collectible. I think for Star Wars, um, you know, as a kid, I mean, eventually I got it, but as a, a, a kid, I really, really wanted uh, more of Luke's home life. I love Luke's home life. I love Tatooine. I, I, I'm the same way with Superman. I love the Kansas, uh, the, the Metropolis stuff, I should say. I'm sorry, the Smallville stuff. I love the, I love the hometown small world kind of uh, atmosphere. And, um, I always wanted it like as a kid, I wanted the play set for the, I mean, you kind of got that a little bit, but I wanted like the, the play set of where Luke is like looking out at the twin sons and you have the, the, the homestead and that sort of thing. I always wanted that play set and they never, they've gotten close a couple times with a couple of things, but they've never really given it to us in the way that I wanted it. And I like things that are both collectible, but also practical so one of my favorite things from Star Trek was the marshmallow dispenser that crafted. So it's a collectible from the movie, but kind of because Spock uses that marshmallow dispenser and you could kind of use it, but I like things that, you know, that you could use on your desk, fun, but quirky and collectible. The great thing about Star Wars is there, there really hasn't been anything they haven't made yet. Right. So. Right. <laughs> I'm waiting for that Star Wars marshmallow dispenser. It's, I want, I want a life-size cut. I want a, how about death sticks? That would be, I guess, that would be something. <laughs> like those fake cigarettes. That would be, yeah. yeah. Be like, 
Yeah, you probably wouldn't sell too good. But, right. uh, yeah, I'm kind of surprised with because we were just talking. We did an episode on the on all the hype for Phantom Menace the other day, and I am kind of surprised for Phantom Menace there weren't. I guess they didn't have it yet. That's the problem. If if uh, Attack of the Clone, if Phantom Menace would have had the death sticks, we probably would have got candy death sticks that you could have bought. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. I mean, any any movie that gives you the Jar Jar where you, the tongue comes out and yeah. that's a that's a lollipop. You have really there's nothing left to make. Maybe if there's an after hours party at Galaxy's Edge, there can be like Death Sticks Light. (laughs) Our final rapid fire question If your spouse was a Star Wars character, who would they be? Well, that's easy for me. Uh, And hopefully she doesn't take this. (laughs) Hopefully she doesn't take this the wrong way uh, because I don't mean this in terms of looks. Uh, but she would definitely be Yoda because I, <laughs> I, she, she loves Yoda, uh, and she, her occupation is the same as Yoda. She's a teacher. Um, she has that same patience. She does the meditation. She's, she's everything but small and green. And, um, I am small. Well, she's small. Yeah, she is small. So, uh, she is not, she's not that small though. Uh, and she, she doesn't do like flips around the kitchen or anything when she's making dinner, but. But I would say Yoda. She's definitely. I think the personality is similar, and uh, and the the heart is the same. Well, I was going to say Yoda, so now I can't. Um, I guess I would say Qui Gon. Oh, Qui Gon. Okay, yeah. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'm dead then. No. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever really gone, John. No, I don't mind that because Qui Gon. I like that he kind of fights the system a little bit, and he 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 believes in it, but he also doesn't tolerate you know just the Jedi order just creating rules and i i'm kind of that way at work i you know i i i love our school and i love the mission that we have but you know it's like any other thing sometimes there's rules and you're like why are we doing that and we don't need to do that and uh, And if you read the books he has a relationship yeah and he yeah he breaks rules sometimes but for good reasons and you know i kind of i i like that i mean that's like what james kirk is right he's sort of the james kirk of star wars uh, you know, I've never really thought about that, but you're absolutely right. We've learned so much in this episode, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, seriously, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, like we said, we're just we we love Brian Daly, we love the radio dramas, and just letting more people out there know about this. And we're 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 doing we're doing our job. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And we really appreciate your kind words about the talk. It's, it's, you know, you, you put a lot of effort into it and you never really know, because especially at celebration and we, and we get it, you know, you, people have to go on to the next thing. There's so many things to do. And it, it was such a, it meant a lot to us that uh, you came up and let us know what you thought and and, and invited us on the show. It, it may, it makes it worthwhile to, to do the research and to share it with uh, fellow fans. So if people want to contact you both like online, if people want any more information, how can they go about doing that? Uh, yeah, well, if, if, if anybody ever wants to get in touch with us, they can uh, get us either through uh, the College of Lake County. If you just go to the College of Lake County, Grays Lake, Illinois website, and you search for our names, our uh, emails and phone numbers would come up if you wanted to get in contact with us there. Or if you want to just get with in contact with us on uh, social media, um, I'm on Facebook and we kind of share that together as a page, but it's just search for my name, John Tenuto, and you'll see a little Captain Kirk uh, icon. That's me. Uh, I don't think there's too many John Tenutos in the world. There's a few, but uh, I'll, I'll pop up and that would be great. It would be a great way to, to get in contact and to, to talk with fellow fans. And I'm on LinkedIn too. If someone, if someone does that, I I'm, I'm on there as well. And you could just look for my name. Well, we appreciate, we, I mean, we were, 
after that panel, we were buzzing the whole rest of that night. It was, it was just a great, it was perfect Saturday night. So thank you so much again for coming on. Thanks guys. Have a good time. You too. Bye. Bye. This is Anthony Daniels inviting you to join me as C-3PO in the only radio production of Star Wars on National Public Radio. Put your hands off me, you filthy little creatures! Might I ask what you're going to do? And these... Last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Wow, that was great. It was so much fun to get to experience that panel again and even find out more details than I think we even heard while we were at Celebration. So thank you so much again to John and Mary Jo Tenuto. I just, I can never hear enough of that kind of stuff. And yeah, so great. So, so great. But as we say every single week, uh, iTunes reviews, if you like this episode and you're listening on some kind of Apple podcast situation, head over there, write a little review. We will read yours on an upcoming show, and it helps the show in a mysterious way. It's the power of the living force. <laughs> it could be more the cosmic force with, yeah, with Apple podcasts. Yeah, one of the two. And after that, check us out on all the social media, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, And if you're on Facebook, make sure you sign up for the Super Chill Group where you can have Blast Points all the time. There's been good stuff. I think daily there's good stuff posted on there. So it's the place to be. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we have got the Blast Points Army on Patreon. We just finished Matrix Month on there with a commentary for the first Matrix. And we're going back to the galaxy far, far away next month over there on the Patreon with a bonus episode and a commentary and Mandalorian is right around the corner and things are going to be getting hot and heavy over on the Blast Points Army with Mandalorian. So and don't forget to check out our website, blastpointspodcast.com, where you can use the handy search feature if you're looking for specific older episodes on a certain topic. Uh, that's probably the best way to find them. Yeah. You want to hear everything we did about The Last Jedi or comic books or books or Greedo's feet? <laughs> search search it up over there you can get a handy dandy list I don't know if we have a tag for Guido's feet yet but uh, <laughs> I'll put that on the list somebody can just go over there and just keep searching have they talked about Guido's feet yet? no a huge thank you once again to John and Mary Jo Tenuto for making this episode so great so special I ho- hopefully this isn't the last time you hear them on the show because we, uh, we, we loved it and in their research, hopefully they have more stuff they'd love to share with uh, with the Blast Points audience out there because we we love everything. Every word out of their mouths was solid gold. If you put this episode on a scale, it would weigh so much it would break the scale. There was so much gold in this episode. So, <laughs> warning: do not put this episode on your scale, or it will break. In the beginning of the Beverly Hillbillies, Jed Clampett was shooting at some crude, and up came this episode. <laughs>
on that note that about wraps up episode number 188 here we will be back next week with the return of phantom menace year can you believe it we just got done talking about marfalump and phantom phantom menace year just keeps going no stopping it so look forward to that next week folks bye bye may the force be with you goodbye old friend may the force be with you It's a phone. I can't even believe that someone's calling. It's, it's the it's the final question alarm going off. <laughs> yeah, perfect timing. That's <laughs> Lucasfilm telling us do not make funny jokes about that. <laughs> That's a big plot point in Rise of Skywalker. Stop it. Yep. <laughs> May the force be with all of you. <laughs>